So today we're looking at John chapter 9, if you want to find it in your Bibles, electronic or otherwise. And my title is, Can You See Him? Can You See Him? So Jesus said in John chapter 7, before our passage today, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus says that if you're feeling empty and unfulfilled, then come to him and drink. Believe in him and he will fill you with vibrant life, his vibrant life by his Holy Spirit. If you're feeling empty and dry, come and follow him, Jesus says, and you'll find life and joy and satisfaction in him. And more than that, eternal life, eternal joy, and eternal satisfaction. I wonder, are you thirsty today? Jolly good. Do you know why you're here and what you're meant to be doing? Are you getting on with it with a sense of purpose or are you wondering what the point of your life is? Do you feel like you're stumbling around in the darkness not knowing where you're going? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus says that if you don't know where you're going or which way to turn, come and follow him and he will be your guide. He will show you the way to go. And his way is into the light. That is a life filled with good things, good deeds, and good relationships. And away from him is darkness. That is a life of broken relationships and material things that don't really satisfy. Are you wanting to know which way to go today? There was a man born blind that Jesus met. He too was thirsty for a good life and couldn't see where he was going either physically or spiritually. So let's see what Jesus did for him and learn from his story what Jesus will do for us when we come to him. So in John chapter 9, the background is Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a long passage in John's Gospel. starts in chapter 7 and goes through to the end of chapter 10. It's all at the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is six months before he's crucified. It's the last major feast he goes to in which all of the nation is gathered in which to tell his message of the good news of the kingdom, that the time has come. Now, the Jewish religious leaders are looking for an opportunity to kill him, and they have been for some time, because his teaching is popular and he helps the people. So he undermines their position and their power. He's telling the truth about their hypocrisy, and he does many miracles, proving that God is with him and not with them. So they want to get rid of him. Now this Feast of Tabernacles, it was one of three festivals that all Jews were expected to go to every year. Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. This one's Tabernacles. It occurs in September after the fruit harvest and they're celebrating the fruit coming in. They would wave things like lemons. They weren't lemons, they were like lemons. It was to remember the wilderness wanderings after the Exodus. And Jews still celebrate it today. They live in temporary shelters, tents, like in the Exodus, booths, for seven days. Here are some modern-day ones that they're building in um, um, Israel. Tabernacles for seven days. Now, at this feast, when they're living in these tents for seven days with their families, remembering that God brought them out of Israel, there's two ceremonies every day, two ceremonies every day for seven days. Firstly, was the water-pouring ceremony, water-pouring ceremony. The high priest would go from the temple to the pool of Siloam. Here's the temple at the top. 
and they'd come down here to the pool of Siloam. He'd take out some water and they'd take it back and they'd go the whole way back and they'd pour it out. It is reminding them of the water that was poured out from the rock that was split in the desert. If you've never seen the split rock, there it is. Can't say about that today. Ask me about it afterwards. It's fascinating. Now, in that context, when they're pouring out the water, the whole crowd is quiet. Everybody's watching the water being poured out. And Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine that? He stands up and everybody's watching and he does that. Jesus is saying, that water ceremony, that's about me. I'm that rock. I give the water in the desert place. That was the first ceremony. The second ceremony was the lighting of the four candlesticks. Four candlesticks. Each of them was very big. Yeah, not four four candles. Four <laughs> candlesticks. Four candlesticks. It is nice doing this with the British audience. Okay. Four candlesticks. Each was very big, about 75 feet high, with four lamps on, and each lamp had 120 pints of olive oil. They were huge lamps, and they could be seen for miles and miles and miles around. It was one of the most impressive lights in the ancient world. And this light was to remind all the Jews of the pillar of cloud and fire in the Exodus. And in that context, at dusk, when the light goes on and everybody looks at it and the whole crowd is quiet, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Stop looking to that light. Come to me, the true light, is what Jesus is saying. So he makes this very big claim twice. He is the one who can give us true life a life full of purpose and meaning and joy and hope and peace. It's a huge claim, but if it's true, it's the most important thing we ever heard. So why should we believe him? You see, the Jews asked the same question. Who does he think he is to make such claims? Tell us, Jesus, who do you think you are to promise us such things? And in chapter 8, Jesus answered with even more claims about himself. He claimed... All of these things and more. He claimed to have God the Father as his witness. He claimed to have come directly from heaven. He claimed to be able to set people free from sin and to raise them from the dead. He claimed to be the only one who would give eternal life and anybody who dies and believes in him will never die, but will go to heaven. He claimed to be greater than Abraham, which for a Jew is a really big deal. And he claimed to be God himself come as a man. And not surprisingly, the Jews didn't believe him. They tried to stone him for blasphemy. Why should they have believed him and why should we? There have always been plenty of crazy people claiming such amazing things and they've all come to nothing. What is Jesus going to do to prove that he is the one and what he says is true? Well, he heals this man born blind and the way he does it proves all these claims. Let's look. Now, don't forget about those two feasts that... Um, the water and the light, they're going to be very important. John chapter 9. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus comes to this man born blind. Now the belief of the Jewish religious leaders at the time and what they taught the people was that this man's illness was caused by sin. That is, it must have been because of a specific sin that he had done. Or it was a punishment on his parents to have a son like this for a sin that they'd done. But that was wrong. 
God is not like that. God hates suffering. So Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. See, sometimes, because it's a fallen world, people get sick, and it's not their fault, and it's not sin. And sometimes people are born with defects because it's a fallen world. It's not their fault, and it's not sin. But this man, because of what everyone was saying, was condemned by everybody under this wrong belief, that he was blind because of his or his parents' sins. Just imagine the condemnation that this family had had to deal with their whole lives. Was it this man's sin when he was in the womb? That he himself must be inherently evil? He was always under suspicion. Every time he talked with somebody, every time they disagreed with him, they could always dismiss him and win the argument with, what do you know, you sinner? Was it the parent's sin? God gave them a blind son as a punishment. Every time they tried to talk with somebody, they were dismissed and invalidated because they were clearly wicked. Everybody knew it. And the religious leaders probably used them as an example of what happens to you if you sin. If you sin like the Joneses, you'll have a child like that. And they don't understand that in God's economy, it's a special privilege to be a parent to a child like that. So the whole family is in bondage to false condemnation. They're not respected, they're not loved, and they're not helped, and they're considered worthless and rejected by everybody. They too believe it's their own fault, but they've no idea what they've done wrong. They've no idea how to make it right, and they've no hope of doing so. But Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In this case, it's not their fault. Peter, James, John, stop judging them and have compassion. You see, we have to begin like Jesus. We begin with healing, not condemnation. Jesus loves this man and wants to do something about his blindness to remove his suffering and the suffering of his family. Jesus always wants to bring comfort, healing, and restoration one way or another. Whatever state you're in, and whatever the cause, and however you got there. I'll say that again, because if you don't hear anything else today, that's the one thing I want you to hear. Jesus always wants to bring comfort, healing, and restoration somehow. Whatever state you're in, and whatever the cause, whether it was your fault or not, and however you got there, he wants to bring healing. So whatever situation you're dealing with today, and wherever you're starting from, whether it's your fault or not, Jesus wants to come and heal it. So come to him for water and come to him for light, if that's you. James says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he gives to all generously without finding fault. He doesn't start off with condemnation. John chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus again says to the disciples that he is the light of the world. Those who follow him will see and will have the light of life. To prove his claims to be our spiritual light and spiritual life, he heals the man by giving him physical light and physical life to prove it, using what we can see for what we can't see. And as how he does so proves everything else he claims, all those claims. So he speaks to the man. He spits on the ground. He makes some mud. He puts it on his eyes. He tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. You remember that pool? He picks this man and his method of healing on purpose. He's fulfilling the candlestick ceremony. I am the light of the world. So he gives light to a blind man. He's fulfilling the water ceremony. Come to me if you're thirsty. He sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash that water. Jesus is superior and beyond, and he fulfills all of it, proving the claims that he just made. He sends him there to wash. And in proving those claims, he proves all of the other ones with it all at the same time. Now imagine the blind man's response and feelings. 
He'd never seen anything before. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. He's only heard him. We're told in verse 7 he goes home first. He wouldn't even recognize his parents on sight. Imagine seeing your parents for the first time. He'd never even seen a face. He'd never seen a smile. He'd never seen a sunset or the stars. And if he had children, he'd never seen their faces. He'd never seen anything beautiful. He'd never seen anything. For him, it had always been dark, but then Jesus comes and heals him. And now he can see. And things he'd not even imagined before, he could now see. He thought he knew the sun because he'd felt its warmth on his skin. But now he could see the sun. He thought he knew his parents before because he'd heard them and he'd touched them. But now he could see them smile. Now he could look into their eyes and understand how they're feeling from a glance. Jesus said, you will have the light of life. See, this is what it's like when Jesus opens your eyes. Those things you thought you knew before, when he opens your eyes, it's all different. It's transformed. Things you were familiar with, you now see in a whole new light. When he opens your eyes, you start to see things how they really are. Do you want to see things how they really are? Jesus says that if you believe in him, you will see. We're all born blind, spiritually speaking, but we're born again with new eyes. And imagine the man's joy, his joy that he can now finally see things how they really are. And Jesus says that if you believe in him too, you will have joy in him. And understand this too, you can't really get a person born blind to understand what seeing is, can you? You can't really get them to understand what, what it's like. You can describe what seeing's like to them. It's only when they experience it for themselves that they really get it. It's the same with Jesus. If you haven't met him, I can tell you all about him, and I'll be glad to do so, but it's only when you see him for yourself that you'll understand who he is. It's his touch that matters. And then when your eyes are open, it's all different. We must be born again from above, Jesus said, by the Spirit. And now the man can see he's walking around. And some of his neighbours don't even recognise him. He's changed, but some of them can't believe it. Is that really the man, they say? He says it is. When Jesus opens your eyes, you can't help but act differently because you see differently. When you believe in Jesus, you'll live a changed lives because you can't help it. And your friends and family will be perplexed about Jesus until they see him too. Now Jesus here is proving his claims, not only to us, but to the religious authorities about who he is through this miracle. He uses the pool of Siloam and the man's blindness to illustrate he fulfills and surpasses the water and light ceremonies. And he heals the man like this on purpose. He could have just healed the man with a word. He could have even healed him without being there. In chapter four, remember, he heals the official servant without even being there. So he does it this way on purpose to make a point. Now we're told in the passage that it's a Sabbath and there's to be no work on a Jewish Sabbath. Now the religious Jews had taken this command to extremes and they'd made it more important than love. So Jesus does two works on this day. First, healing is work. You weren't allowed to heal anybody on the Sabbath. Hard as that is to believe. And second, making mud is work, just like at the Exodus, making the clay bricks, remember? It's all the same. The spit was for making mud. So if somebody asks you for prayer for healing, I'm not saying spit on them, that is not the appropriate application from this passage. Okay. 
So Jesus has here got two witnesses that he's working on the Sabbath. And that therefore Jesus', Jesus work has got God's approval. So the authorities hear about it. The man's summoned and they ask him, how did you get your sight back? So think about that. What would be your first response to the news? Your neighbour, born blind, could now see. Would you praise and thank God? Would you have a party and celebrate? Would you show this man everything you could? Would you give him Netflix? Would you? Well, their response is, tell us the details of exactly how Jesus broke God's holy Sabbath. That's what matters to us. They're only interested in condemning Jesus and getting rid of him. And they're so focused on getting rid of Jesus, they're blind to what he's just proven. See, healing the blind had never been done before. There's many miracles in the Old Testament, parting the Red Sea, raising the dead, but never restoring the sight to one born blind. And in fact, it was a signature miracle of the Messiah. Prophesied in Isaiah 42, verse 7. It was a miracle that not only proved Jesus' claims, but proved he's the long-awaited deliverer. They should have seen this, but they themselves are blind, spiritually speaking, because all they can see is a man undermining their position and authority, a man showing up their sin. They claim to see the truth about Jesus clearly, but they are blind. Instead, the blind man who couldn't see Jesus, well, now he can see everything. He tells them what Jesus has done, and all they can see is Jesus breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus must be a sinner, in verse 16. But how could a sinner do such a miracle, they ask? They're confused and don't know, these religious leaders. So they ask the man, who do you think he is? He says, verse 11, Jesus is a prophet. Now notice this, the man just previously had called Jesus the man, in verse 11. And as he's reflected on his experience of meeting Jesus, as he understands and his spiritual eyes open more and more, he no longer sees Jesus as just a man. Now he believes Jesus is a prophet. As he believes in Jesus more and more, he sees who Jesus is more and more clearly. clearly. And it's the same for us. The more you believe and act on it, the clearer you will see him and the better you will know him. So if you've never believed in Jesus, start and you will see. Take something he said, even something small, and obey it. He will show you the truth and show you himself through it. It will likely begin with an odd little coincidence. I can tell from the laughter that many of you have had that. When you started to follow Jesus, an awful lot of things just seemed to happen by coincidence, didn't they? They stand out. And as you start to believe, you'll see more. So you'll obey something else, Jesus said, and see even more. And Jesus will move from being just a man to a prophet as your eyes are opened. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to find that life he promises, start to believe, start to obey, and I promise you that you will see him more and more clearly and you will find him. He wants you to find him. He wants you to see him. And he wants to bring healing. Now, conversely, notice the religious leaders. They start off with unbelief, with their own agenda, wanting to reject Jesus in verse 22. They can't see, and they hear about the miracle, and it only makes confusion for them. They see less because of their unbelief. They should be the teachers who see clearly, but now they ask the man who he thinks Jesus is. They need his opinion. So be warned, and you can see this happening around you. As people refuse to see, as they refuse to listen to what Jesus is saying, the opposite happens. 
They see less and less, and they end up with more and more confusion. And they end up with spiritual blindness. Just turn on the news. The religious leaders can only square the theology that Jesus is a sinner if the miracle didn't actually happen, that Jesus is a fake. They expect the evidence to be false, that all this stuff about Jesus healing people and changing lives is a hoax, hoax really. So they call for the parents in verse 18. But the parents confirm that the man was born blind and now sees. How he sees, they don't know, they say. But actually they do, and they're frightened of being put out of the synagogue. So they won't say. It must be false, they say. Show me a changed life. There are changed lives, if you're willing to see. The Jews, the religious leaders, ask the man, man again and demand this time on oath that he tell the truth. In verse 24, they think he must be lying about Jesus, but he's not. He says, I told you already how I did it. Why are you still asking me about him? Do you want to become his disciple too? The man has thought and reflected further in this conversation. Jesus has moved on in his thinking from being a man to a prophet to now someone he wants to follow. He declares he's a disciple of Jesus even though he's never seen him and only met him in person once, briefly. As he believes and obeys, he sees who Jesus is more and more clearly and now he's become a disciple. The Jews aren't seeing the changes in this man. They don't understand that Jesus is healing him on the inside too. They can't explain the external changes. They can't deny them. He really is healed. He really can see and it really was Jesus that did it but they can't handle the truth. They won't accept what Jesus says about them and their sin that they need to repent of. And so as they reject Jesus, they have to reject the blind man and his testimony too. They don't have a rational basis for their rejection, no clear argument, so they resort to name-calling in verse 28. I wonder, has that happened to you? And then the religious leaders boast about how great they are, how great their lives are to justify themselves and make themselves feel better. We are disciples of Moses. God spoke to Moses, and we don't even know where this Jesus guy came from. But Jesus had told them he came from heaven, and this miracle proved it to them. If only they'd open their eyes, repent, and accept it. Don't be surprised if when you come to Jesus, you get ridiculed too. Don't be surprised if when you resolve to follow Jesus, to do things his way, that you get ridiculed and mocked. People will be threatened by the changes they see in you, the good changes. They'll be envious and they want the good things you have, the joy, the peace, the hope, the love, but they won't want to let go of their sins to get them. They will boast about how happy they are, how together their lives are, but it won't be true, and they'll shout it louder and say it more often to convince themselves and everybody else around them. But those who refuse to come to Jesus and see him will end up being even more blind if they see the changes in you and still reject the truth, that Jesus came to heal everybody without fault, and give life. The religious leaders don't know where Jesus came from, they say, but they follow Moses, who God spoke to. And now the man gives them a lesson in theology, these leaders. He says, this is simple and obvious. God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to godly men and women. Jesus opened my eyes, so God must be listening to Jesus. God spoke to Moses, you say, but God listens to Jesus. He understands even more about Jesus now. As he believes and obeys, he sees more. So he believes more and obeys more. Jesus is a godly man. Jesus is from God. Jesus is greater than Moses because God listens to Jesus. 
Jesus is from God. As he believes and acts on it, he sees more and more clearly who Jesus really is. He also sees their hypocrisy more and more clearly as they close their eyes and ears to the obvious truth. Previously, he'd looked up to them as the religious authorities, his leaders. They knew God, so he thought, because they had all the robes and the ceremonies and they talked with confidence. He and his parents were sinners, they told him, because he was born blind and he'd believed them his whole life. But now he sees that these religious people don't know the truth at all. They claim to be good, claim to be wise, but they're planning murder. He sees the gap between what they say about themselves and who they really are. They don't really believe in God and want to follow him because they prefer their own ways, their status of being known as God's own true servants. So they shout at him that he was steeped in sin at birth, so they can't think of anything better to say, and they throw him out in verse 34. He had heard that story many times before about his being a sinner, proved by his being blind, but now he knows that's garbage, that's not true. It's a lie that's holding him back. Those haters want to keep him down for their own purposes. The world says he's worthless and was born in sin, and the world rejects him. But Jesus says to this man, it doesn't matter where you started from, let's bring healing and life. I accept you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. If you can't see, come and follow me and I'll show you the way. He says, I'll set you free as you follow me. He says, I don't reject you. I'll never reject you. You're not worthless. I'll forgive whatever sins you've done. I'll heal you of the consequences from your sins and whatever else someone else has put on you. Jesus says, anybody who comes to him, he won't drive away. Everyone is welcome. He wants to save and heal. Jesus says, you know what? I love you so much. I'll die for you to heal it to set you free from your suffering. The man's thrown out of the temple and Jesus comes to find him. Jesus asked him if he believes in the Son of Man in verse 35, which is referring to a figure in Daniel chapter seven who is both God and man all at once. And the man says, tell me, sir, who he is so I can believe in him. Remember, he's never seen Jesus. He's only heard him. He says, I understand who Jesus is now both God and man. Please help me, sir. I've met him briefly, and that one touch changed everything for me. But I couldn't see his face because I was blind to him. All I want now is to find him and follow him. And Jesus says, I'm right here. Now you really have seen him. It's me. And the man calls him Lord and says he believes in him. He declares that Jesus is his master who he will follow and obey. And then he worships Jesus. The man had woken up that morning and it was like any other day. He was a blind beggar and his life was difficult. Not only because of his blindness, but because he'd been born with it, his whole family was castigated and written off as sinners. His birth had brought immeasurable pain and suffering to his family because he was born blind. They were not the right kind of people to associate with because they were inherently sinful. Everyone said so, even the religious leaders. He believed it himself. There was no hope for him or for his family. So that morning, like every day, he went out begging, hopelessly. But that day, Jesus came to him and opened his eyes. One touch from Jesus, one act of belief and obedience on the man's part to wash his face in the water, 
and everything was different forever. Healing came to himself and his family. Now he could see, and as the day progressed, his spiritual eyes also opened, and he saw clearer and clearer who Jesus was, his Lord, his God, who loved him and accepted him. Jesus had always loved him, and Jesus took his blindness, that brokenness he had, that had caused him and his family so much pain, and Jesus transformed it into a wonderful proof of everything Jesus claimed. You might be wondering where God is in your pain, and what is he doing with it all? Why me, and what's the point? Don't you care? Bring it to Jesus, and I guarantee you, he will transform even your biggest problem into praise, somehow, as only he can. Dare to believe that Jesus can and will do amazing things with your brokenness. That's what he always does. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you want to see what that man saw? Do you want to see that eternal life with your own eyes? I can't open your eyes. Only Jesus can open your eyes to see his face, how things really are, and give you eternal life in abundance and joy. If you want to see Jesus, he will open your eyes if you ask him to. God bless.